Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is The Last American, an Irish Examiner investigative podcast produced and presented by Noel Baker with additional research by Mustafa Darwish. In part one, Noel Baker dived deep into the life of Thomas Stofiel. This is part two, A Lonely Mountain. They know I'm the man of God. They know which side I'm on. So I've drawn my line, they've drawn their line. And the FBI says Thomas may have weapons on him, that if you see him to call 911, of course, anyone with any information is asked to contact the Portland FBI field office. Jennifer, back to you. The FBI saying also do not approach him to call that night. He told me the big lie is an American dream. He told me there is no dream. There is a devil in America. He was a sweetheart. He was just the sweetest. He didn't talk too much. He talked to just about the paradise, the hell, something is coming to this uh, planet, you know, maybe next year everybody gonna, gonna die. Yeah, always talking. He was in some sort of a state of a paranoia, um, stating that he was uh, being followed by the Freemasons and they're out to get him. He's playing the devil. Man, I'm telling you, he's going to burn. After a wandering existence in the wilds of America, how did prepper, preacher, and outdoorsman Thomas Stofiel come to end his days in a Tralee direct provision center? I'm Noel Baker, and together with my colleague, Mustafa Darwish, we've been looking at the story of Thomas Stofiel, the lost American. Atlas House in Tralee is an unprepossessing bundle of apartments off a side street in the County Kerry town, not far from a major supermarket. Its two-tone paint is flaking off in parts, and there's little, bar some of the musical choices audible from the street, and the clothes drying on the small balconies, to suggest it is home to almost 90 single male asylum seekers. People from sub-Saharan Africa, former Soviet states, the Middle East. This is where Thomas Stofiel lived once he arrived here, unheralded, from an unknown point of origin, for reasons that are still unclear. The Irish examiners learned that Thomas worked in town as a kitchen porter in a restaurant, and that he was regularly spotted walking Tralee's main streets in his army jacket, sporting the same goatee beard he's seen tugging for emphasis and comfort in some of his videos. But it seems in some ways at least, he was a different man in the county known as the Kingdom. We know some of this thanks to Ali, a former asylum seeker who is now involved in his own business. After we've entered his premises almost by accident and first mentioned Thomas's name, he pulls both his hands towards his chest. Forceful and emotive, Ali has a sense of drama in his movements. He's originally from North Africa, 
but his bond with the mysterious mountain man from Pacific Coast America seems very real. This is a very nice guy, you know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's very quiet and very, like, not ignorant person, yeah. you know? Very, humble, very humble. humble, talk, you have a lot of information about life. Basically, he's um, a wonderful man. Ali does not know, however, why Thomas came here, of all places. The typical American visitor to Tralee is a tourist, not an asylum seeker, from the United States of America. Ali's words capture the strange codes of the direct provision, or DP, process. It's not a secret society, more a society with secrets. People from DP seem to know each other from afar and have much in common, but most also know not to confide too much or too often, even with those closest to them, the people with whom they are thrown together. As for Thomas, Ali says, I don't ask people about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's yeah. just very unusual. I never ask him why you come here, yeah. why you have, what you have there. I don't like to make people uh, feel uncomfortable. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, you sure, know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. if he didn't, he never say things. He, he talks to me about his, what he, what he like, places he went, but all mm. my wife is American, so he was telling me about places where she lives. We, mm. we talk about places, we talk about politics and talk about many things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ali gave us a contact number for the person in Ireland with more information on Thomas than anyone else. That's Imad, a bright-eyed man, also from North Africa, but utterly Western in his style and dress sense. We meet him in Cork City, where he now lives and works. The traditional street sellers of the Echo newspaper are booming out their signature call, while a busker and a car alarm fight for airtime as we wait for him to arrive. Over a coffee, Imad remembers Thomas with deep fondness and describes him as his best friend in Tralee. Yet, strangely, it turns out Thomas wasn't even the first American he encountered in direct provision. That was Eric, another asylum seeker, who shared the same room with Imad before Thomas. And both Americans had something in common. They have same problem, Imad says, gesturing at his head. Why was he in claiming asylum? He showed me some pictures in the, the White House in the US, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Eric Israel is talking some story, you know. Conspiracy it, stuff? Something like that, yeah. Okay. He showed me pictures in the White House in, really? in Washington. Uh, yeah. Not of him, I assume, of, of what, are he, what he thought was going on in the White House. No, but he's, he's, he's Thomas in the White House. Yeah. Eric, Eric. Eric. Oh, hang yeah. on. So, so Eric showed you photographs of Eric in the White House? Yes. Really? Yeah, yeah. And he was claiming asylum here? Yes, yeah. Wow. Eric, he says, was a very, very strange guy. Someone who slept during the day and spent all night on his laptop. Imad eventually had to ask him to stop, as he needed to sleep because he was working. Ultimately, he moved into another room. It seems Eric received a deportation letter and left, almost certainly on a flight back to the US. Very soon afterwards, Thomas arrived. By then, Imad had been in direct provision for around six months, but he made an immediate connection with Thomas, his new roommate. Uh, 2019. Okay. 2019, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, something like that. So it was definitely 2019 here. Yeah, I think that makes sense because on, on, uh, online you can see clips of him on YouTube. Yes. And he's in America in 2018. Mm. And he's he's going to different parts of the country. Yeah. He's, sometimes it sounds like he's sleeping in his car, yeah. you know, he's living rough. Yeah, he so, told me that. Yeah, that he was having a tough time. He told me a little bit about his story. Yeah. He was like almost, you know, 
and then before Ireland he was in the Alaska. In Alaska? In Alaska, yeah. He showed me some pictures there, snow, you know. Really? Thomas had never been in Ireland before, and Ahmad never found out exactly why he arrived here. I asked him many times what he doesn't like. I said to him, listen, I'm Algerian, I came from North Africa. I'm here as an African, but you are an American citizen, you know. Everybody, you can go everywhere, you know. Yeah. You're an American citizen, and then something like, you know. Figures provided to the Irish Examiner by the Department of Justice, covering the decade from 2011 to 2020, show that in that time there were 50 applications for asylum or international protection from American citizens. None were granted protection status, either refugee status or subsidiary protection, and fewer than five were granted leave or permission to remain in Ireland. The department said in the same period, 40 deportation orders were issued, 10 of which were affected. Those numbers, though small, easily exceed the number of applications from people of other English-speaking countries, such as Australia and New Zealand. The figures also show the rate of asylum applications from Americans has been increasing. Between 2011 and 2016, there were fewer than five applications lodged every year, and none in 2014. But 34 were lodged in the years 2017 to 2020, with 12 applications by American citizens made in both 2019 and 2020. It begs the question, why? Fiona Hurley is Policy and Communications Manager with NASC, an NGO based in Cork that assists migrants and refugees. She never had any contact with Thomas, but is aware of a number of Americans in the direct provision system in Ireland in recent years. While all cases are different, she senses that for some US nationals, there is an element of paranoia, legitimate worry, or both, that they are somehow at risk of being surveilled or monitored by US authorities. A post-Edward Snowden miasma of danger and fear. In the small number of cases that we see, she says, sometimes people might express that they are, or they have concerns about, I suppose, monitoring by their country of origin, or maybe that they are maybe an activist. It's not necessarily more typical of cases that people might think about, she continues, war, conflict. They believe that they are being monitored and are unsafe if they remained. Fiona believes that in addition to any possible element of paranoia among some US applicants, there can be a perception that Ireland is more rural than it actually is, that it offers a kind of bucolic obscurity unlike the UK or other European countries. Despite this, and the obvious appeal of a common language, Fiona doesn't see any evidence of special treatment for Americans within direct provision and argues that in some ways seeking asylum is more difficult for US citizens who enter the system. They would possibly have their case heard faster because they would be from a country that's seen as a safe country, she explains, so it's a harder barrier to prove that they have a legitimate case. Fiona also believes someone like Thomas was unlikely to link in with an NGO or community group, meaning the groundings for his asylum application may be written on a file in a government department and so few people are privy to the reasons he gave. Someone who was a former US soldier, she says, if you're paranoid about the US, if you're going to have a real fear for your data being used by anyone anywhere, so anywhere where you would have to register for a service, he probably wouldn't have done. The usual method for an American to enter Ireland is through a 90-day visa, followed by an application for the appropriate immigration permission to the Minister for Justice, or an application for an employment permit to the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, prior to entering the state. Fiona Hurley believes that for Thomas, this wouldn't have been easy. 
applying for long-term residence in Ireland, he would have had to go down, well, unless he had family here and an established relationship here, he would have been looking at coming in as an international student, which would require a lot of money, she says, or getting an employment permit. And he may not have qualified for any of the employment permit jobs. And so for whatever reason, Thomas applied for international protection, becoming one of the small but growing number of US nationals entering the asylum system in Ireland. Was Yah directing him as per his beliefs? I'm running out of time, so I'm going to go on down the road. Um, Asher Tana, everybody. That's uh, Hebrew for bless and praise everybody. I, I've learned my, uh, Hebrew. Um, I'm called Methusha Yah. That's the man of Yah, the man of God. And Husha uh, Yah, Methusha Yah. Yah has saved the man of God, the man of Yah. Until next time, Shalom. For Ahmad, the reasons for Thomas applying for asylum became less important than having him around as a friend. When he first arrived in Ireland, Ahmad spoke Arabic and some French. First, Eric, the other American, began assisting him in learning English, and then, later, Thomas, to much greater effect. In fact, Imad began speaking English with an American accent. He beams at the memory. Thomas as well, he was very busy, Imad says, in a restaurant in Tralee, in town, working, in the kitchen. He was a kitchen porter. He was working four or five days, sometimes six days. He liked the job. He liked to be busy, get some money, meet some people. He was happy, actually. From reproaching himself in his YouTube videos for craving cigarettes, now Thomas would smoke outside with his coffee, sitting with Imad. They would occasionally smoke weed, like many of the residents. Not long before this, Thomas had been accusing his brother of similar behaviour, of falling foul of the scriptures. But some of the old fire still burned, and the incorrigible beliefs remained. Sometimes they ask me, when we die, where we are going? So he asked me about uh, the paradise and the hell, what we believe mostly, you know, what we have after this life, you know. And, yeah, we believe something, Thomas, yeah. different, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes I, like, scared, you know, after that I get scared. If you see someone in the face, you will know, Ahmad explains. If someone is 100% mental health, Thomas was not 100% mental health. He told me before he was a Christian. After that, he became a Jewish. I told him I'm Muslim. I pray every single day in my room. I never had problems. We were talking about the Quran and the Bible. It turns out Thomas didn't like Donald Trump or any politicians, but his own conspiracies were never far away. Ahmad says Thomas spoke to his daughter regularly while in Tralee, although according to Martin L, it may only have been once or twice. Did Thomas tell her where he was, what he was doing? Ahmad isn't sure, but he could see the positive impact of that contact. He always, he loved her. When he spoke to her, when just he finished, he spoke to her. Thomas wasn't in Atlas House that long when, at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in Ireland, he went missing from the centre. According to Ahmad, he went to the mountain. Yeah, he did here one, one time, yeah. He went to the mountain, and then for maybe 10 days, something like that. And then 10 days, no food, no water, nothing. When he comes back, it was first lockdown. He told me 10 days or two weeks, no food, no water. If you see his face, I shocked. The period away, wherever he'd gone, 
had ravaged Thomas's already skinny frame. He recalls Thomas's spell in a room away from the other residents as he quarantined. I give him his food, his dinner. If I'm working, the security would do it because he was very, very bad, Emad says. When I see him the first time, I said, Thomas, what's happened to you? I thought maybe the coronavirus. After isolation in the room after that, he comes back. I went to his room because I like him. I asked the manager to be in the same room because we were comfortable together. I tried to help him every day. We go outside, drink coffee. We go outside to go for a walk in the park. I tried many times to help him. But the problem with Thomas is he doesn't trust anybody to tell you exactly, you know? He doesn't talk so much. Just about the paradise, the hell, something is coming to this planet. Maybe next year, everybody is going to die. He was always talking about that. In this doomsday scenario, did it matter whether Thomas was in Oregon or Tralee or anywhere else? In echoes of some of his online testimony, he told Imad that in America, he'd had a big house, three cars, a good quality of life, and that he'd been homeless. It didn't seem to matter. He was, in Imad's words, happy actually, but he was still unhappy. His 10 days in the mountains wasn't a misadventure. It was a warning. He was still conflicted. Things were still not right. According to Ali, Believe me, believe me. Mm. He was saying this to me. Mm. He told me the peace he got here yeah. a thousand times better than America. He told me, I remember what he was saying. He told me the big lie is an American dream. Mm. He told me there is no dream. There is a devil in America. Thomas, in this trap. I remember this trap. I was laughing at him. You are American and you don't like America. He told me, it's not alone like America because I still have family there, especially my daughter. But believe me, all your dreams will see them one And at this stage, Ali waves his hand in the air. You just fly and you cannot reach them because... Disappears. Disappears. At the top of Barnanagihi, on the Schlievmish Mountains outside Tralee, the Iron Man still looks out across the countryside. The remains of a telephone deflector dish erected by the old Department of Posts and Telegraphs many years ago, it fell victim to repeated strong winds before it was all but flattened in a storm two decades ago, leaving what now remains, a rusting, mangled pile of metal. Not too far away, in a valley on the same mountain range, Thomas Stofiel, the journeyman ironworker, was found. Imad can't quite remember the sequence of events the second time Thomas went missing. Was it that he awoke and found Thomas was gone? Or that he returned in the evening to find his friend wasn't there? He left everything. He had two phones, something like that. Two phones? Yes, and the money, and he left everything on the table, yeah. And he squashed everything with him. One day, two days, I told him he has no friends here. I know him very well. Where is God? I thought maybe he went back to the mountain. Just maybe few days, few weeks. But uh, he has a small uh, attempt, you know, attempt. Attempt. Attempt, yes. Yeah. He has a small one. Yeah, but he lives there. Oh. So, yeah. Thomas hadn't even taken his bicycle. Everything. Phones. It's special phones. No, he has two. And the money. And sugar. Everything. Thomas was missing for three weeks, by a mad's guess, from late October 2020. In Ireland, it was the second lockdown. Everything was closed. People were mostly staying inside, except Thomas. 
the manager and the security, every single day they're asking me, because if someone doesn't sleep in the hostel for just 24 hours, you have to send them to quarantine for two weeks in Dublin, Ahmad says. Every day they were asking me. I tried the phone, but they were in the room. After two weeks, they didn't tell me anything. And then the guards, he means the guardie, the Irish police, they come to my room. After that, I said, no, something has happened. The Irish examiner understands that Thomas was reported missing on October 25th, 2020, and that a missing person request was sent by investigating members of Angarda Siakona to various agencies in the US, checking to see if he had returned home. But he hadn't. In and around November 14th, a local farmer who was herding sheep down the mountain spotted something across the small valley at Tonavane on Sleeve Mish. It was Thomas's body. The emergency services were immediately contacted. The scene was consistent with a man having taken his own life. It's understood there was no note. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And this is the will of my father, and that's what I got to do. Now I'm running out of time, so I'm going to go on down the road. Gardy hiked up the mountain, as did the eight-man team from Kerry Mountain Rescue that recovered Thomas's body, a team including Jerry Christie and Seamus O'Shea. Now, we're on a path now, but quite quickly, we're going to leave the path. When we meet them in Blennerville, not far from the foot of the mountain, it's spitting rain and a low wind is whistling around us. It's a dirty January afternoon, and Jerry and Seamus, accompanied by Seamus's dog, Haley are taking us up the mountain. Uh, right, follow me. Jerry turned 69 on his last birthday and is officially retired from the mountain rescue team, but there's been no dulling of his skills. Both he and Seamus skate up the boggy, steepening terrain. Jerry was already in his 40s when he joined the mountain rescue team and his whirring pace is matched only by his speed of thought and his turn of phrase. Seamus, himself a 13-year veteran of mountain rescue, describes Jerry as one of the legends. Jerry replies, what Seamus means is, I can't shut up. The topic of conversation varies from hobbies to the music of Nirvana and Jerry's stalled Gaelic football career. Seamus and Jerry prefer rescues to recovery missions, people being escorted down the mountainside after being hit by an asthma attack, or helping someone who snapped an ankle. Both Seamus and Jerry, who looks like Willie Nelson if he'd been born in County Meath, recall the day Thomas was found. Actually, Seamus recalls what was coming was a storm we ended up in a storm force on the way down. We could barely stand up in the jeep and get the stretcher back up. It got really bad. It got vicious in the afternoon. We trudge up the mountain. The wind sharpens battering down the glen and into the gully, down which a stream flows from Barnagee. Jerry knows the story of the Iron Man. It stood on top for about 40 years, he says. It was telegraph posts so workmen could go up and not get lost in the cloud. These are very easy mountains to get lost in, he says. When you get up here in the cloud, it's very easy to get disorientated. Jerry believes Thomas followed the line of the stream on what he says was probably a one-way trip. Now, the other thing is I've never been in Oregon, but I have a picture of Oregon 
which makes this place look like the bottom of somebody's back garden. Yeah. An inquest scheduled for later this year will hear details of the discovery of Thomas's body and the results of a post-mortem examination. But both of the rescue men believe it is unlikely that Thomas had trekked elsewhere or that he simply got lost. It's possible, Seamus says, but he didn't have an awful lot of gear. He had cheap green rain gear, a small bag. Only for the time of year, he might not have been found for six months. It's only that the farmer was passing by that spot, he continues. It's a place that nobody goes, really. They were collecting sheep. He, as in the farmer, was above them and following the valley down, and he saw him. He was checking all the nooks and crannies, and he looked across the valley and saw him. We overshoot the exact location and double back. Jerry estimates it at around 260 metres above sea level, a sea visible in the panoramic view down towards Tralee and out into the bay. Vegetation here is sparse, comprising little more than a few hardy rowan or mountain ash trees. It's like a one-way mirror. We can see Tralee, but can Tralee see us? You know, you're so close and yet you're so far. This is quite a difficult part to reach. They remember another peculiar case, this time back in early 2013, when an American man flew into Shannon Airport, hired a car and drove down to Kerry. Then he parked up in a wooded area in the Black Valley and also took his own life. Strange echoes. It wasn't the first search for Thomas out in the wilderness where he felt most at home. Martinell recalls the March 2017 incident where he was part of the effort at locating Thomas and his daughter. It was something which happened afterwards that most troubled him. He recalls members of various parties involved in the case, including the FBI and social workers, sitting around a table to listen to Tom tell his story. By then it had emerged that Thomas would not face charges but would be separated from his daughter. It was an incoherent story, Martin says, and it was clear to everyone there that mental instability is playing a large role in what he did. Having now determined that Thomas broke no laws, he was released back to me and told to come back the next day to get his truck. We did, and to my shock, they gave him his guns back, freshly cleaned and oiled. I knew at that point there was going to be no help for Tom. The system, Martin says, was going to fail him. Back on Sleeve Mish, Jerry and Seamus are talking about the day they recovered Thomas. Seamus says, Today is like the day we pulled him out of here. Like today, just more windy. It was a slog getting back down the slope, Jerry recalls. I get the impression the guards already had a good notion who he was, he says. They never said anything. They never do. The body was found by somebody who was up here taking sheep down off the hill and was found quite accidentally. Nobody was looking for this person. Nobody was out searching for this person. Now, this person, I understand, had been reported missing. But I think the supposition was they could have been anywhere in the world. I don't think there was any background intelligence suggesting that they came up to a remote spot of Sleevemish to take their own life. Imad remembers some hints that things had not been going well for his friend. Thomas, before what he did, what happened, he says, he wasn't talking. He was very stressed. Imad remembers his roommate, 24 hours in the room, staring at the ceiling. But as ever, he didn't tell me the real story. Felicia, everything together. Who was my life, my best friend? But he doesn't tell me the real story. 
Figures published last year by the International Protection Accommodation Service, or IPAS, showed that from the introduction of the direct provision system more than two decades ago, up to June 2021, some 88 people had died in direct provision facilities. That figure included four cases where a person had died by suicide. No data is collated on the number of people in international protection who go missing from DP centres. The department says applicants are not required to live in IPAS accommodation and are free to live in private alternative accommodation, provided they advise the International Protection Officer, IPO, within the Department of Justice of their address. IPAS does not record medical information of International Protection or IP applicants when it comes to seeking assistance for their mental health. A spokesperson for the department said people in international protection would access those services in the same way as any Irish citizen. According to Fiona Hurley of NASC, when someone comes into the state and applies for asylum, they should be provided with a vulnerability assessment. However, Fiona Hurley believes someone like Thomas, avowedly sceptical of people in general and agencies in particular, could easily become isolated. She says those seeking asylum often show incredible levels of resilience, but it's a fine line. It's quite possible his needs would have been overlooked, she says. We have definitely seen people who have health issues and mental health issues, and they weren't assessed. When someone is assessed, and even if Thomas had been assessed, then he goes into the same waiting list that Irish citizens would go into. Imad says of his friend, I told him many times, you need a GP. He always said, I'm fine. And then he was okay. He had special problem. Mental. After the discovery of Thomas's body, Gardy paid a second visit to the room at Atlas House, removing Thomas's belongings. Imad finally learned from others at the centre that his friend was dead. It hit him hard, and even now, seated in a cafe in Cork, when he recalls those moments, he sings lower to the table, like he's been struck in the chest by a bag of sand. I was feeling very bad, you know, if someone I know him, and then he was my away. I hate the room just because Thomas, when I see his bed, his bike, his clothes, so Thomas and then he's dying. The first week, I was like very scared, you know. Yeah, I never it's happened something like that. They told me that if you need to see doctor or something like that. I said no, okay, because I was just looking for rent, you know, I get my paper. I was looking just for rent to get a, a room or a studio, something like that. Just I want to leave the hostel, you know. Because special hostel is very big stress there. Yeah. In the night I cannot sleep. Yeah. I started looking for rent. If I find the room for 600, 700, you I want to, to go, you know, because it's like prison. And then what happened with Thomas? Before what happened, I give to him like advice to book a ticket for his daughter to come to Ireland to meet her. Yeah. He said, oh, good idea, something like that. But the airport it was closed. In you America know. or here? No, it was the first lockdown, oh, you the know. First lockdown. Everything was closed, oh, yeah. Imad yeah. didn't know about Thomas's YouTube channel. Maybe by the time Thomas arrived in Ireland, it had ceased being important to him or didn't fully represent who he was in this new country. For Imad, Thomas had peculiar, sometimes troubling ideas, but he was not always the raging man of years before, who spoke of taking up the sword for Yah and who had declared, it just burns me up. Yeah, has to do something soon because I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to take this nonsense around here. Thomas's school friend, Aaron Kearley, had no knowledge of what happened to Thomas. Neither did Marles Lazur. Both learned of his death after being contacted by the Irish examiner. This makes me so sad, Marles says, on learning of Thomas's death. 
and as if to drive home the eerie, confused nature of what occurred, for a brief period following the discovery of Thomas's body, another name circulated on Facebook groups, suggesting that the man who had died was actually called Jeffrey, another American said to be seeking asylum here. Even Jerry, sometimes, refers to Thomas as Jeffrey, before correcting himself. Imad, for one, won't ever forget his friend, though there were times he tried to. For me, it is difficult. After that, and he makes a whistling sound, I left. I go to Cork. I forget truly. I don't want to go back there. Sometimes I deleted the video. I don't want to remember him and the pictures in the phone because what happened, it's still there, you know? He pulls his hand towards his heart. The thing I know is he has a daughter. He was always talking to her and sometimes he'd tell me about her. Sometimes he cries. I ask him, Thomas, why are you crying? After that, he says he has a daughter. She's 14. He loves her more than you can imagine. Imad catches himself, his eyes welling up. Just now I remember him, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, if someone has daughter, you know, sometimes you have help, you know. You're getting emotional. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Before Thomas ever passed away, there were small requiems for him from his daughter. In public social media platforms, she pinpointed how she felt about his absence including as far back as 2018 in one flowing, poignant post. She writes of, The joy and laughter I had with my dad. I miss him and I see him in my dreams. Some may be bad, but there are good memories that I relived in my sleep. I wake up in joy or in tears, she said, but I shall always remember the amazing father that he always was. And if you could meet him, you would see the love, joy, caring and understanding in his eyes. He had a big heart that would show love for all the years you live, just like now how he lives with me in my heart and always. Thomas's daughter didn't know what had happened to her dad. It seems fair to assume, knowing what we know, that Thomas might have thought he was being monitored by the authorities or by God knows who. Yet ultimately, when Gardy informed the US authorities of Thomas's death, they did not or could not locate his daughter. She just didn't know, not until the Irish Examiner investigation. Back in 2018, and on a different social media account, and an old photo is displayed showing Thomas and his daughter when she was much younger than she is now. Underneath it, she wrote, It feels like it was so long ago when I was actually happy. Thomas was laid to rest in a plot at Rath Cemetery, a council facility on the edge of Tralee town. A simple wooden cross bearing a plaque says he died on November 14th, 2020. The plot is untouched bar a wreath. Who's there to tend to it? A minute-long clip sent to the Irish examiner shows Thomas's coffin being lowered into the ground at his funeral. A small knot of mourners, maybe ten people, are close to the graveside as the rain patters down. Imad was not among them. I don't know where I was. Where I was, yeah. I was very stressed. I'm yeah. And then I'm very, yeah, I, I don't know how can I explain to you about I wasn't okay. When, when I heard what happened, I wasn't okay. I want to move to start a new life, you know, outside the tree, all to you know. I had friends there, I was working, I was fine. But after then, what happened, I hid. Does Thomas's brother, Don, know what happened? We can't say, mainly because for quite some time, Don dropped off the grid. 
Up until May of 2020, he was posting videos, sometimes live streams, including of that altercation outside of Walmart. And he was seen speaking in clips, showing him in towns such as Frisco and Breckenridge in Colorado, two places synonymous with the gold rush. But then the posts stopped. Attempts to contact him by the Irish Examiner through social media and other means proved fruitless. And then, in the weeks before finalising this podcast, a new social media account appeared. We tried messaging Don again, but he didn't respond. Maybe he will, and if he does, we'll be very interested to hear what he has to say. Just think back to his always colourful social media output. Based around him, living off-grid, up the mountains. YouTube clips of his outdoor life show him giving thanks to Yah and outlining how he's taking unleavened bread and observing the Shabbat, all while constructing a cabin up in the Rockies. His dream is simple. Build a cabin, and in such a way that he doesn't wake up with a bear inside it. My name is Don Stofiel. Yep, this is my outdoor life. There's my view of the lake all the way through the trees. And this is my cabin. And like I said, I've been doing it for 37 years. Now, a couple of years back, I was with my brother in Superior and built a cabin. I almost got it completed and got caught <laughs> and got fined. Now, it's not a jailable offense. Now, unless you continue in the area that you got in trouble in, if you go back to the area and, and try to rebuild again, you know, then it's going to escalate for you to go to jail. But if I get caught up here, basically there's tons of fines, you know, federal fines, because this is federal property. And so I really don't consider it federal property. There's only one God that made the heavens and the earth, and that's Yahweh, hallelujah. And he sent his salvation, Jesus the Messiah. And so he's the one that really owns it as far as I'm concerned. Shalom. Live and let live, but that wasn't quite how Thomas lived his life. The intensity and uncompromising nature of his beliefs came at a price. Broken relationships, the loss of his daughter, and an already tough life that veered ever more to the ragged margins. Maybe it's worth asking where those unyielding beliefs ended and the paranoia and mania took over. Then there's the worry of his daughter's other family, missing her for years, or the upside-down existence she experienced the wild oscillations of being with him. Maybe a line in the Warm Springs police report detailing the scene following the March 2017 incident provides a clue. It says, She appeared to be tired, was not shivering, and was smiling and responsive to general conversation. On several occasions, she hugged Thomas's left arm in what appeared to be an attempt to comfort him and keep him calm. It turns out Snowflake was her cat. Imad didn't delete all the mementos. I have some videos with him, he says. Summertime, for memory, me and him. Both Thomas and Imad had bikes and would head off cycling, including to the mountains. But the best spot, and Thomas's favourite, was a beach near Tralee. Imad shows us photographs, including a selfie taken there. It's Cockleshell Beach, or in Irish, Thrawn Rulcon. He loved the nature, Imad says. He loved mountains, and especially this place. 
These pictures is uh, me and Thomas. We used to go here to the mountains. Yeah, we go cycling together. Yeah, yeah. We take pictures. We have seat here. Thomas, he loved when he. Has the iteration of Thomas who cycled out here, pedaling along the Atlantic coast, seemed less like the paranoid adult truther of YouTube. Maybe these were better days. With his scattered, illogical, and often scary thoughts and actions, in some ways he was a man seeking refuge, a would-be prophet in the wilderness, in a ruthless, razor's edge America. He lost it all, and then pitched up here, in North Kerry. Maybe he felt there was something inside him that he couldn't outrun. On our slog up to Tonavan, Jerry, the sage of the hills, referred to the very British concept of conquering the mountain. You don't conquer a fucking mountain, he said, with good-natured disdain. The mountain is not humbled, or conquered, or diminished, at the end of any day. True enough. Surely the reward on climbing any mountain is what you see from the top. In that beautiful, desolate place, Thomas was a man in acute crisis, and before him was a panorama of the sea and the land, with Tralee, a grey thumbprint, surrounded by greens and browns, all under the rusting eye of the Iron Man. Is Cockleshell Beach visible from up there? We asked Jerry, and sure enough, it is. Yeah, righteous anger. I'm not gonna lie. I had a lot of righteous anger, and I still have righteous anger. I wake up in a good mood every day, and I'm happy and have no complaints of my life in the van, the uh, minivan life in the... And uh, just living for ya, really. I mean, I like it this way. I'm a traveler, I'm a nomad, a gypsy, whatever you want to call them. This podcast is for the Irish Examiner. Research was by Mustafa Darwish and me, Noel Baker. The documentary was written and narrated by Noel Baker and the sound engineer was J.J. Vernon. Sound up was Jim Collin and the project editor was Deirdre O'Shaughnessy. The music in this documentary is by Casino vs. Japan, with special thanks to Eric Kowalski. If you are impacted by any of the issues in this podcast series, helplines are available, including at samaritans.org and by calling 116-123. Thank you for listening. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.